This morning, I continue in that series that I have been in, The Case for Grace, Forsaking the Hybrid Gospel. And I want to begin today by sharing with you the reason, maybe one of the main reasons that I continue to preach the gospel of the finished work of Jesus Christ. First of all, it's because I don't just have secondhand knowledge. I have firsthand experience with this gospel of grace. I know what it's done to me. Now you can argue if you want. Theologians can come along and pick apart anything I say and say, well, I don't know about that. But what you cannot argue with and what I cannot deny is what it's done for me. It's changed the way I think about everything in life. Not just about how I see God, but how I see you and how I see me. One of the main reasons I continue to preach the finished work of Jesus Christ is because I care. I care about the saved and I care about the lost. Not only do I care, but I've also learned over time that the finished work of Jesus Christ is the most suitable triage. And then I have discovered that grace, the finished work of the cross, is the only, it is the exclusive remedy, if you will, for the wounded and indoctrinated soul. Several years ago, Valerie began to convince me that one of the deepest issues that the believer was dealing with were the lies that were stuck on the inside of them. Those are wounds. Lies are wounds. They're not friends. They're wounds. Because those wounds affect you. Those lies affect you. And for a couple of years, I preached on inner healing. I just couldn't get off of it because I was convinced, and I still am, that that's where the seed of the problem existed, is it started with believing lies. Lies that were sown into our lives inadvertently in some cases, sometimes very intentionally. Lies that were preached into our hearts by well-meaning men and women of God. It just wasn't truth, friends. But the one thing I didn't do a very good job with back then, even though I preached on that subject for a couple of years, I didn't do a very good job of showing people and leaving people out of those lies. In other words, I accentuated the problem without the remedy. And so as I'm opening with these thoughts here right now, I'm telling you that the finished work of Jesus Christ, the cross, the grave, the resurrection, the gospel of grace is the exclusive, the only remedy for the wounded and indoctrinated soul. In 1998, these words were prophesied over me. Now that's 25 years ago. A gentleman that I had never met stood in front of me and said, I see a mantle of power coming over you, and there's a source of energy in there that is going to increase you 
in your ability to teach. And the Lord is really going to adjust your doctrine. You're going to see things in the Word of God that you, quite frankly, have never seen before. And it's going to cause some persecution to arise. And those that you thought were friends, those that you called friends, will be offended at some of the things you say. For the Lord says, you be truthful, you be faithful, even unto that which I have shown you. For I have begun, even tonight, to show you some things that are very important to the sanctification and redemption of my people. Now, I want you to think about those two words. The sanctification and the redemption of my people. He said, tonight I have begun to show you some things that are very, very important to the sanctification and deliverance of my people. The word sanctification means to be set apart. Now, I don't think that's a revelation to you. You've heard this word many times over the years. It's got a very short, to the point, direct definition to it. The word sanctification means to be set apart. So let's ask the question, what are we set apart from? Well, we're set apart from sin. And what are we set apart unto? We're set apart unto him. We're set apart from sin. We are set apart unto him. Not only are we set apart from sin, but we're also set apart from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the penalty of sin or the wages of sin, as it says, is death. You don't have to worry about that anymore because you have been set apart. You have been sanctified. You have been set apart from sin. You have been set apart unto him. Most believers that I have ever met will agree on those two points. You won't get much argument there. They'll say, yeah, I believe I was set apart from sin. I, I believe that. I believe my sins were taken away. And then you say, do you believe you're set apart Unto him. They'll say, yeah, I believe that too. No disagreement. But this is where the fork in the road begins. Once we get past those two tenets of doctrine, if you will, of the church, this is where the fork begins now. We were walking along together. We were in total agreement up to this point. Now we're faced with a fork in the road, and how many of you know going straight when the road forks is not an option? You usually have trees or a cliff or something, right? So you've got to go one of the two directions, right? This is where the forked tongue of the serpent begins to propagate, begins to speak those lies into our minds, these lies. Take this way. One camp of believers is taught that they are the maintenance man of their own destiny. Come on. How many of you have lived in a church like that? You are the maintenance man of your own destiny. And if you don't get there, well, then you're just a bad maintenance man. 
The other camp of believers is taught that the finished work of Jesus on the cross rendered the maintenance man unemployed. Now, the, <laughs> the latter of the two is correct, but it is the road less traveled. Jesus, come on, Jesus is the one who maintains our gift of righteousness. Everything operates through righteousness with him. And Jesus is the one who is maintaining this righteousness of ours. And he does it apart from employing the law. You're not co-laborers. You're not co-workers with the law. The law is not employed for the believer. A believer under the law is like an automobile under a train. Both the train and the law will always win, but at great cost. And each of them, the law and the train, will strip you, rob you of your confidence. You come under the law, you'll lose your confidence. You come under a train, you'll find out what your automobile is made out of. You'll lose your confidence in a moment. But thanks to Jesus' sacrifice, believers are no longer under the death sentence of the law. Why? Because the letter kills. And because we've already died with Christ, we were crucified with Christ, we don't have to die again. So the law is not our friend to kill us again, friends. The Apostle Paul would say those words. He would say that the letter killeth. We're not talking about alphabet soup here, friends. He said the letter killeth. When he said that, he's talking about the law. And he says, this is what the law does. It killeth. It kills. It murders. It robs you. Leaves you beside the road. Dead. Runs you into the trees in the middle of the fork. That's what the letter does. You say, can you show me a scripture on that? Well, I've shown this scripture a few times, but let's take a look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Now, notice how the Apostle Paul starts this. He says, such confidence. Remember, no confidence in the law. You lose your confidence in the law. You lose your confidence in the train. He says, such confidence we have through, come on, Christ. Our confidence is in Christ. Do not put your confidence in anything but Christ. Everything else will eventually let you down. I don't care if it's a person, a product, whatever it is, your own emotion, it will they'll always let you down. But he says here, such confidence we have in Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves. But our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers, there he goes, of a new covenant. Do you see where he was going with this thing? He was taking you on a journey here. It's kind of like those Hallmark movies, you know, you watch about five minutes of it, and you know exactly how they're going to end, don't you? He's, <laughs> they're, all, they're all the same. They're all the same. I could tell my wife within five minutes, and I don't even hardly ever watch him with her. I said, there's the boy that meets girl right there. And you know it right out of the gate. 
And so you can see here that the boy is meeting girl all in the front because he's telling you, you got all this confidence. And then he works his way down and he says, he, come on now, folks, he, who's he? God. God has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. So he tells you there that your competence flows out of the new covenant. You see that? This is where confidence comes from. It comes from understanding that you are in the new covenant. The new covenant is in you. Now it makes me confident because I know what the new covenant consists of. And then he says, not of the letter. Remember, the letter refers to the law. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. And there he says it, in case he wasn't plain enough, he says, for the letter kills. Come on, the law kills. The Mosaic law, all the law kills. How does it kill you? Because you have to obey it all the time. And the scriptures say that no flesh is justified by the law. Justified, which means declared innocent, made right, righteousness. Dekaiao in the Greek, that means you can't have that with the law. It's always been by faith. Abraham was not justified by the law. He was justified by faith. The whole Old Testament worked by faith too on a relationship with God. He says, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Amen? Friends, you're probably not pipe smokers, but if you were, I would say, put this in your pipe and smoke it, okay? (laughs) You're probably not pipe smokers. Good thing, probably. But put this in your pipe and smoke it. We are dead to the law. Dead to the law. We are free from the law. That's a scripture in the Bible. It also says we are not under the law. And it says Christ I get so excited about this. Christ is the end of the law. He's the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Do you believe today? Amen. 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 Christ is the end of the law. It's not the law that gives life. That scripture said plainly here, it was the spirit that gives life. The spirit of what? The spirit of the new covenant. Think about the context here. What's he talking about? He's talking about confidence in the new covenant and the spirit gives life. Life what? Life in the new covenant. Confidence in the new covenant. Now, the word deliverance. The word deliverance is defined as the action of being rescued or set free. Okay, I'll buy that. Sounds like I've been delivered if I've been rescued and set free. What are we rescued from? That's a better question. I don't want to know just that I'm rescued. What am I rescued from? I have no appreciation for this new covenant if you don't tell me what have I been rescued from? If someone just walked up to you on the street and said, by the way, you know, about a block back there, I rescued you, you'd say, oh, okay, well, thank you. What did you rescue me from? Wouldn't that be the normal question? That would have no meaning until he unveiled everything that was going on. So what are we rescued from? Well, the first chapter of Colossians tells us that we are rescued from the dominion of darkness. 
Now, that sounds to me, when I think about dominion, I think about something that has a grip on somebody. You're under somebody's dominion. Someone's got a hold on you. Someone's got influence over you. In fact, that's what the word dominion means. It means the influence. You are rescued from the influence of dark shadows. Sounds kind of spooky, doesn't it? You've been rescued from the dominion of darkness. You've been rescued from the influence of dark shadows. And dark shadows don't just show up, you know, after the sun sets. There are people today that are walking around with the darkest, the deepest, darkest shadows of the soul. And they don't know how to get rid of these dark shadows. When the sun comes out, the shadows are still there. The darkness is still there. And they don't know how in the world do I ever get rid of this. They don't know what they've been rescued from. I'm talking about believers too now, friends. Not just unbelievers. Believers as well. We were rescued from the dominion of darkness, the influence of dark shadows. But then he says, I didn't leave you alone. Because the scripture continues, and he said, and then you were brought in. You were brought into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Come on. You've been rescued from the dominion of darkness, dark shadows, influence of darkness, and you've been translated, you've been morphed into, you've been brought into the kingdom of the son he loves. Who's that? That's Jesus, friends. Don't ever get tired of that name. You've been brought into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption. That means he's bought us out of darkness. He's bought us out of slavery and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption. Come on, the forgiveness of sins. Beautiful, gorgeous. I love it. 25 years ago, when it was prophesied over me that the Lord was going to Really adjust my doctrine. And that's the way the man said it. He used the word really. Now at the time and over the years, I thought, what in the world is wrong with my doctrine? That kind of bugged me. I've got mixed emotions here. What's wrong with my doctrine? You mean you're just going to grow me in the doctrine? No. No, there was something wrong with the the doctrine. He adjusted my doctrine over the years because no meaningful sanctification and deliverance of his people could flow from a hybrid gospel. And that's what I was under. That's what most of the church is under today. What is that hybrid gospel again, Mr. Mark? It's a gospel that adds anything to Jesus's finished work as the ways and means of attaining salvation, maintaining salvation, or retaining salvation. That is a hybrid gospel. There are no addendums to the gospel. It's a beautiful truth. It's a finished work. You see, as he changes the way one believes, it changes the way words come out of our mouth. I've noticed that over the years. 
So as he changes the inside, the inside only works its way out. That's all it does. How many of you know that the tongue cannot function apart from the mind? People that are brain dead do not engage in conversation. Our tongue gets its orders from our minds. If you take away the mind, the tongue will cease to speak. Would you agree with that? In the same manner as one mind is transformed by the unmerited grace of God, then that person's tongue will become fluent in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's an inside job that works its way out. The tongue is like a key. It can unlock the prison cell of another person's despair and hopelessness by speaking grace, by speaking the presence of Jesus into that situation, by speaking hope, influencing them, not with the shadows of darkness, but influencing them with the brilliance of light. That key can do that for a person, but a key can also lock the prison cell door. See, the key that locks it from the outside is the same key that locks it from the inside, friends. It's kind of like a rudder on a ship. It's a very, very, very small part of that ship. If you look at the mass of that ship and you find the rudder, the rudder is what does the steering. And that's why James would liken our tongue to like a rudder. And he would say, if you put a bridle in a horse's mouth, you can turn that animal on a dime because it's affecting his tongue. Today, I want to assure the body of Christ that the direction, the course in life that you have been sailing on, if it's full of dark shadows, it's not that you just have to change directions. You have to change the way you think. There may not be anything wrong with the direction, but it's the wrong way of thinking. So today, I want to minister the ninth message of this series. It's a message I'm calling Falsely Imprisoned. And what I want us to see through the message today is this. The primary reason that a believer's thoughts and feelings and emotions are falsely imprisoned is because he or she has cuddled up next to a hybrid gospel. That's it, friends. That's what locks you up. A gospel that is filled with great sorrow and unceasing anguish. A gospel that is void of life and life more abundantly. Years ago, I watched as the car that was traveling in front of me was hit by a train. It threw that car around like a two-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. Off the road the car came and down into the ditch it went. I mean, that train didn't even budge. And it was a big car. Boom, down in the ditch it went. 
I watched the driver. There were three young teenagers in that car. The driver opened up the door, and he got out, and he started running the opposite direction. And then it broke out so many windows that the passenger in the back seat, he came diving out the window. I mean, this guy would have won a competition the way he came out of that window and dove out of that window and rolled on the ground and ran the same direction as his friend. And while those two were running away from the car, I was running to the car because I knew there was a third guy in that car. He was pinned beneath the dash. He was bleeding. He had glass all over him. And he was in a state of shock. He was hurt pretty bad. You know what I did? I didn't know what to do. I had never encountered anything quite like that. I laid my hands on him and I began to speak life into him. I began to declare, you will live and not die and declare the works of the Lord. That no weapon formed against you shall prosper. I just went to praying in tongues. And I prayed in tongues until the medical personnel finally arrived on the scene. My main point is, I provided for that man what he needed in his moment of crisis. He needed life spoken into him. He needed hope. He needed love. I even asked the man to pray the sinner's prayer with me back then. That was a long time ago. I gave him what he needed in that moment. And so it is with the gospel of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Come on, listen to me, friends. Ministers should minister what believers need most in their moment of crisis. I'm talking about the gospel. The good news that propels us to leave the comforts of our own vehicles and delay our own agenda. I was on my way to someplace and run to the ditches of destruction, run to the ditches of chaos, and to speak life into trapped souls. My main point is, is speaking life. And so when we come to minister at this church, we come to minister life. We come to give you what you need in your moment. And hopefully it can avoid a crisis in life. You see, I daily encounter believers that have been hit by a train, imprisoned in the wreckage of mangled emotions. Some are dealing with the decision to or the aftermath of divorce. Many are wrestling with the torment that they have lost their salvation. That is the biggest one. And then you'll find a few that believe that they've committed the unpardonable sin, but you ask them, what is it? They don't even know how to explain it. Believers cannot commit the unpardonable sin, okay? It's for unbelievers. You can't commit it. So I deal with people like this all the time. A great number of believers are incessantly harassed by guilt and shame, and still others are bullied by fear and condemnation. Their souls, listen to me, their souls, their minds, their wills, their emotions are bleeding all over the place. They are pinned beneath the weight of the law and an ideology that is not fit for human consumption. And they are living in an intermittent state of shock. One moment they're in shock, the next minute they're not. Then they're in shock again. Friends, I can't remember the last time I was in shock. Maybe shock and awe, yeah, but not that kind of shock. I got a couple questions for you. How did believers get themselves into this alligator-infested swamp? That's a good question, isn't it? Come on. That's a good question. And why is the body of Christ pinned in the wreckage 
of great sorrow and unceasing anguish. These are always, I tell Valerie this all the time, these are always toilsome, painful questions for me to answer because it always feels like I'm picking on other denominations, but I'm not. I'm not picking on anybody. I love everybody. Would you agree with me that when the dressings need to be changed on a burn victim, that it's going to be painful for that victim? Would you agree with that? I've been told that is a pain that's like no other pain. Giving childbirth might be right there with it, but that is a pain. And so when the nurse comes in to change the dressings, is she picking on the patient? He's screaming at the top of his lungs. Sounds to me like she's picking on him from down the hallway. Sounds to me like the nurse is picking on old Johnny again. Johnny seems to be doing this like twice a day, about the same time when that one nurse is on duty. No, she's not picking on him. She's giving Johnny what he needs. What he needs in that moment to heal up. You don't change the dressings. You don't do away with that. It's going to get infected. You're going to have a bigger problem on your hands than you did before you got burned. It's just part of the healing process to remove the bandages, to take off the bandages. Believers that are trapped under a law-centered gospel, listen to me carefully, are like burn victims in the sense that their minds have been seared with an incompetent teaching and a counterproductive doctrine concerning their identity in Christ. Don't worry, they're still saved. Nothing can undo that. Why? Finish work. Having believed, in other words, on the right side of that commitment to trust in Christ, having believed, they call it in the Bible, they have been taught a salvation that resembles that more of a warranty on a product than a guarantee on a promise. <laughs> I don't know about you. Oh, no, I don't want no warranty. I want the guarantee. Warranties let you down. Guarantees don't. And we've got a guarantee on a promise by God. And we can see that truth in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Look at these words. <laughs> Come on. I love how it starts. In Him. Put all your trust in Him. You also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Don't you love that? He just defined what the message of truth is. It's the gospel of your salvation, the good news of your salvation. And then he says, having also believed, in other words, you trusted in what you heard. You were sealed with him, with the Holy Spirit of promise. I love that. Look at these words, who is a deposit, come on, guaranteeing. The Holy Spirit is our deposit. And believe me, God, as many people as he's got to deal with, he will never forget where he put deposits down at. You do not have to worry about that. God is not going to forget where he's got deposits down at. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit is the brightest light there is. And as he 
scans the earth. He can't overlook that light. We're sealed in him, that's Christ, with the Holy Spirit of the promise, who is a deposit, I love this, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, according to those two verses, it says the gospel of our salvation was released when we listen to the message of truth, not incompetent teaching, not counterproductive doctrine, but when we listen to the message of truth and then believe, and then trusted in the truth. It says, we were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Isn't that beautiful? I don't know how you can look over these scriptures and still worry about losing your salvation. I don't know how you can look at these scriptures and think somehow you've committed the unpardonable sin. I'll tell you how that happened. Because when it came to that fork in the road, you went the wrong way pertaining to what you were taught. That's all. Because it always goes back to what you're taught. Friends, let me tell you something. The fork in the road has been taken away. There's not two ways. Jesus is the way. The false imprisonment that came by going down the road of rule-keeping and law-abiding as the means to make us more righteous terminated into the side of a train. Not a locomotive train, but the train that Isaiah prophesied about. Let's take a look at this scripture. Isaiah said these words in Isaiah chapter 6 in verse 1. He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, <laughs> I saw the Lord high and lifted up, high and exalted, seated on a throne. Look at these words. And the train of his robe filled the temple. This is a type and shadow of our salvation. You see, we are the temple that has been filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is his robe of righteousness that fills our temple with the promise of redemption, sanctification, and deliverance. In the days that King Uzziah and Isaiah lived, the train of a king's robe symbolized strength and security. When the king of one country conquered the king of another country, then he would take the robe of the conquered king and have a piece of that robe cut off and he would have it sewn onto his train. Friends, Jesus has conquered all of the earthly kings. He is high and lifted up, pouring out love, pouring out power, seated on his throne, and the train from his robe fills our temple with glory. Now, I have a message to those who have been falsely imprisoned by the king of a hybrid gospel. It's time to remove your dressings. It's necessary for inner healing. Healing of the mind, healing of the emotional realm. Do you know when Lazarus came walking out of the tomb, 
Jesus said to those standing by these words. He said, take off the grave clothes. Remove Lazarus's dressings and let him go. Did he say that? He did. He said, remove this man's grave clothes. Take off his dressings. I want you to make note that Jesus didn't say change his dressings. He said to remove the dressings. Lazarus had been completely restored. Now, I don't know if you know what happens to a body in four days in heat, but it's not pretty. One of the first things to go is the skin. And so when Jesus said, take off the grave clothes, surely when we peel these grave clothes off, we're still going to have a skin problem. And no, Lazarus was completely restored. You don't have a sin problem. You don't have a skin problem. You have a Jesus who has taken care of all of that stuff. You say, Pastor Mark, I don't know as though I want my grave clothes removed. I don't want my dressings changed. I don't want my wounds disturbed. See, that's what we do. We bury them. The ones in our soul, we bury them so nobody can see them. And that's okay. It's not that everybody has to see them, but let God deal with them. He's the great physician. Let Jesus deal with them. But we get in the habit of saying, no, thank you. I don't want you disturbing my wounds. I don't want to go through the pain of growing new skin. Look, I just had poison ivy not too long ago, and I'm telling you, it's painful when the skin sheds, and it's just painful. Well, I've got good news for you. King Jesus' strength and security, come on, are not dependent upon whether or not you let him cut away the dead skin that you're wearing of the old covenant, people that are wearing that old covenant mindset, Jesus' strength and security does not change. It is by him that all things consist. He's the one that holds us together. But what does change is our strength. You know, the scripture says, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, part of those all things is letting him dress the wounds, letting him take away the bandages. But if you say, no, then it's your strength that is affected. His strength and his security are ours as a gift from the Holy Spirit of promise, the one who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I care so much about the church that I have conceded that the abuse, the cold shoulder, the defamation of character, the way it affects relationships, and we've had to deal with all of those things in the ministry. I've got a good friend right now who pastors a church and he's just been thrown under the bus. I don't know what the details are, but he's bleeding in his soul. 
Friends, if you ever see me color out of the lines, you'll know I'm hurting in some area. I don't need more pain inflicted on me. I need your prayers. I need your help. I need your support. I need your love in those situations. And that's what we are to do to the body of Christ. Now, we're not planning on coloring outside the lines, just so you know, okay? But we've had to walk through all of those things over the years, relationships that didn't form or relationships that were there that fell apart because they are offended at this finished work of grace. Everything I've had to deal with over the years are inconsequential compared to the gift of seeing the body of Christ dislodged from the carnage of twisted scripture and set free to walk in her freedom. All of the stuff I deal with is nothing. To see the bride walk the aisle, to see her in her beauty, in her radiance, full of confidence, full of expression. I love that. I never tire of seeing that. And these are the very emotions that the Apostle Paul was experiencing when he wrote his letter to the Roman church. He was dealing with the same thing. Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Take a look at these scriptures. He said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He says, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. I want to be honest with you. I can't identify quite yet with that. I don't know if this is hyperbole. It doesn't sound like it. It sounds like Paul is in so much love with his own people that he said, if I could substitute myself for them, you could curse me, Christ. You could curse me, God. I could be cut off for the sake of my people, those of my own race. That's a lot of love. That's a lot of care. Do you love anybody that much? It's okay. If we're not there, it's okay. Maybe it was hyperbole. I don't know. Paul loves these people. He's given his life for the ministry. Valerie and I were talking, I think it was on the way to church this morning, that we don't forget that Paul was a tent maker. He had to support the gospel. The gospel wasn't funded well enough, so he had to make and sell tents for people. And I could just see him, you know, I was telling Valerie, you know, that he's thinking, golly, I got to preach in the morning, but I got these four tents to make. You know, we got Silas, get over here and help me make these tents, you know, and they're making tents together. This is real stuff. This is where ministers live. We're all out there together. You're there too. When I look at Paul's heart, I get a glimpse of this is what the gospel of grace will do to a believer. It wrecks them to the point whereby others' lives are equally as important or maybe even more important than their very own. Who ever heard of such a thing? You don't hear that anywhere else. You see, the first aid kit that the Apostle Paul possessed when he was under the Jewish law was for the sole purpose of dressing his own wounds under the law. But the first aid kit that he was given under the gospel of grace was for everybody. You got a problem? You got an issue? You got a sore? Come to me. Let's put a word in your heart. It's a different first aid kit. 
It's for the Jew. It's for the Gentile. It's for the chosen. It's for the frozen. It's for the saved and the lost. It's for the slave and the free, the male and the female. It's for the immovable. That's that stubborn person. And it's for the impressionable. You say, Pastor Mark, how do you know? How do you know when a person has been falsely imprisoned? What is the evidence of that? Those are good questions, fair questions. You listen to their words. The tongue that unlocks the prison door is the same tongue that locks the prison door. The scriptures tell us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, thoughts, feelings, and emotions will eventually express themselves through speech. They have to come out. Now, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. It is impossible to eat a hamburger and vomit a hot dog. Would you agree with that? It's impossible. What we eat is what eats us. What we consume is what we regurgitate. And what we swallow can either free us or falsely imprison us. What we swallow with our minds. What we swallow by entertaining what this person is saying. It sounded good. That's why people get built out of billions of dollars through scams. It sounded good. And then check with the Spirit, who's the Spirit of truth, who always leads us into all righteousness, all godly things. There are about 1.9 million inmates that are incarcerated in the United States prison system. How many of you know not all of them are guilty of the crime that they are sentenced for? Statistics, I'm talking about government statistics, will tell you that about 5% of the prison population have been falsely imprisoned. Now, 5% doesn't seem like a giant number, but 5% of 1.9 million is 95,000 people. It doesn't mean that the inmates that have been falsely imprisoned are perfect little angels. Nevertheless, they are not guilty of the crime that they are serving time for. Now, it would be difficult. I said this to Valerie a couple days ago. It would be difficult to have to serve a life sentence knowing that you're guilty. But can you imagine having to serve a life sentence knowing that you have been falsely imprisoned? Can you imagine that? Just always thinking, surely they're going to come up with some evidence. Surely I'm going to get out of this place someday. Now, if those statistics and the thought of serving a prison sentence for a crime you didn't commit have grabbed your attention, then you might be even more shocked to learn that about 95% of the church, the body of Christ, has been falsely imprisoned. Listen to me carefully now. Imprisoned only in the sense that they have put their faith in a fork-tongued doctrine rather than the finished work of Jesus Christ. See, that's why I don't like to preach on this right here. I don't like to do it. But remember, it's the truth that sets us free. 
Wikipedia defines false imprisonment like this. It's either called false imprisonment or it can be called unlawful imprisonment, same thing. It occurs when a person intentionally restricts another person's movement within any area without legal authority, justification, or the restrained person's permission. Actual physical restraint is not necessary for false imprisonment to occur. I hope you paid attention to those words that physical restraint is not necessary for false imprisonment to occur. People are not physically restrained in their church chairs. You can get up anytime you want and walk out of here. We see it all the time, right? You got things to do. You got places to go. You're not physically restrained when you come here. People are not physically restrained in their Sunday school classrooms. Nevertheless, as they sit and listen to an excerpt or maybe an entire message that the Holy Spirit has not authorized, has not justified, they are nonetheless being restrained in a sense in their soul, in their mind, in their emotional realm. As much as every region, I think we could do this with the states. I call all over the United States with my job. And if you dialed the number, and I didn't even want you to dial the number, and I just, I just took the phone and listened, I can just about tell you where, what area we're calling. You get really good at these accents. <laughs> Boston doesn't sound anything like Texas. Okay? New York doesn't sound anything like Wisconsin. They're different, right? So the regions of the United States, each of them have their own accent. And the same is true with every denomination, every church denomination out there. It has its own flavor. It has its own belief system. It has its own accent. So does it stand to reason that if a person grows up in southern Mississippi, that they're going to sound different? than a person who's grown up in Wisconsin. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. The atmosphere that a child develops in is going to influence their speech. And so it is with our spiritual language and understanding. If we are raised in a Baptist church, then we will think and articulate like a Baptist. If we are raised in a Catholic church, then we will think and we will speak the Catholic language. If you are raised in Texas, come on, Fred. <laughs> if you are raised in Texas, come on, Fred. Come on, build a big old hat on Fred there in a mechanical bull. Sorry about that. I, saw, I just saw that in my mind, Fred. Boy, I would love to see that. <laughs> if you are raised in Texas, then you will develop a Texan accent, period. You say, well, wait a minute now, where did Texas get their accent from? Well, they got it from the settlers that migrated from Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. And as one carries an accent, come on, they carry it to another region, they carry it to a new place. We are also carrying this gospel of grace to the world. That's the beauty, friends. First with you and then with others. We are carriers of this gospel. Do what you can. You're going to find yourself speaking a language that doesn't sound like someone else. 
When we lived in Virginia, when we were kids, we would toggle back and forth from Wisconsin, Virginia, Wisconsin, West Virginia, Wisconsin, Tennessee. Real Southern folks down there, right? And we used to pick on them because they were so Southern, you know, little kids our age, you know. And so we gave them one that would be a real hard one for them. We would say, I want you to say the mouse ran out of the house. And they, they wouldn't understand why you were saying that. So they say the mouse ran out of the house. And we'd say, we'd say, no, you didn't say it right. They said, I said it just like you did. No, you didn't. And we would say, say the mouse. And it would take them four or five tries to get mouse. And, they, and I remember one girl looking at me one time and said, that doesn't sound right. Sounds right to me. Do you see what we're up against? This is where the struggle is taking place because we have these different languages, but it's not just the language, friends. It's the current of the Spirit. It's the new covenant of grace. And no matter if someone thinks you're crazy, no matter if they think you speak their language or not, keep speaking it. It's a slow drip. Forsaking the beliefs and traditions that one has been indoctrinated in. I mean, getting rid of that, forsaking those traditions, forsaking those beliefs. Fred, I'm telling you, if I said, if I put you under a commitment, I said, don't talk Southern anymore. There's no way you can do that. If I tried to sweet talk you and said, Fred, if I don't hear another Southern word come out of you for the next week, I will give you a million dollars you would lose the first time you opened your mouth. Because that's what's on the inside of you. It's almost impossible if you think about it. You know, in the natural, right? It's tough. You can't command it out of them. You can't sweet talk it out of them. It can only come out, listen to me carefully, through the miracle of grace. I'm not talking about the accent, but I'm talking about the belief system on the inside of us. That can be changed. People don't want that skin messed with, but that can be changed. But you have to get real enough with the Holy Spirit. Maybe people don't hurt enough. I don't know what it is. But you have to get real with the Holy Spirit and say, it's okay. It's okay to change me. But most people don't want any more change. They're comfortable stuck where they're at. The reason most believers remain falsely imprisoned is because they are stubbornly refusing to change. Or they won't allow their dressings to be changed. They won't allow their grave clothes to be removed. Or because they are so blind that, that they cannot see that the doctrine that they have believed needs to be adjusted. Remember what that man prophesied for me? And the Lord is going to really adjust your doctrine. I couldn't see it back then. But I went through a period of time in my life where I thought, I've not connected with your heart in the way I want to see your heart. Honest. And then it came. The Apostle Paul opens his letter to the Galatians by letting them know that they have been charmed and fascinated with a brain-dead gospel and it has falsely imprisoned them. He would call this the no-gospel-at-all gospel. The Galatians hadn't lost their salvation but they had lost their sense of innocence. See, that's what the body of Christ is struggling with. They don't feel innocent. They feel distant. They feel dirty. They feel crummy. You lose the innocence 
when you put yourself back under the law, any form of it, any part of it, one thing about it. Because now it's no longer a gift. You're in charge of one area. No, it's him or not. It's all him, friends. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, we find these words. Apostle Paul said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. Come on. He said, this is what you've walked away from. The one who called you to live, not pass through, not sojourn, to set up camp, to drive stakes, to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse, as we have already said. So now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Wow, that's strong language, friends. Strong language right out of the gate with his letter. He's getting some stuff off of his chest, isn't he? I was visiting with a believer over the phone some time ago, and he was seeking help with his marriage. You see, his marriage had run into the side of a train and then off into a ditch. In listening to his words, it didn't take me but a minute or two to figure out that his spiritual relationship with God was built on a faulty foundation. He hadn't talked probably 60 seconds, and I drew a line across the paper that was in front of me, and underneath of it I wrote foundation, because I knew I had to come back to this. That's the problem. And I said to him, as the foundation of your viewpoint of God and the finished work of the cross is corrected, your marriage issues will simultaneously be corrected. You see, in his early Christian walk, he had been exposed to, and he had developed his appetite for the prophetic and for the word of faith. And I'm not against the prophetic or the word of faith, but I've also learned that it's grace and truth that sets a man free. Prophets were truth-tellers. That was another way to say prophet, truth-teller. They were not grace dispensers. They were simply truth tellers. Like it or lump it, this is the truth. God said this, that's it, full of truth. But the prophets were more of the truth tellers and not the grace dispensers. I told him that he needed to trade away the grand finale. How many of you know what a grand finale is? It's the month of July, come on. I said, you need to trade away the grand finale and you need to, like a little kid, just put one little sparkler in your hand. You're chasing the big bangs of life. Nothing wrong with a big bang once in a while. But I'm telling you what grace will do for you in this gentle little whisper and the way it caresses your heart, it changes everything in your life. So I told him, you need to trade away that grand finale 
for a sparkler. You see, I got to admit it myself. I think almost everybody's favorite part of a fireworks display is that grand finale at the end. I too love the profusion of colors and the defibrillator concussion bombs bursting in air, you know what I mean? <laughs> Resulting in a rapid release of energy causing the air to expand faster than the speed of sound producing that sonic boom and shockwave. Come on, you guys have been there in these fireworks when that's going on. I don't know what they call those things. I've always called them concussion bombs. The one that just have a flashbang, you know, bang, and it's a and good night. And a whole bunch of those going off at one time. I don't know, there's just something about that. I like all that stuff. But I told him, I said, you got to set that aside for a moment. Get the sparkler back out. That takes you four minutes with a big lighter to light. <laughs> oh, there we go. That's all we had when we were kids, snakes and sparklers, you know, those little black little snakes that burn and smell terrible. (laughs) No one can tolerate, nobody was made to tolerate that much activity, to always look for the big bangs. Sheep were meant to lie down in green pastures. David wrote that and he said, and I lead them beside the fireworks display. No! He said, I lead them beside still waters, didn't he? David said, that's what sheep need. And Jesus himself referred to us as sheep. That's what you need. You need a green pasture. And the fact that you're laying down tells me that you believe in my strength and security. And when you get up from your little nap over there in the shade, we're going to lead you beside still waters. So it's nice and still where the sheep are at. I told my friend that the sonic boom is not what he needed in his moment of crisis. The young man that was trapped in the car that hit the train, the one I ran up to, didn't need a fireworks display at that moment. He needed to know the gentle voice of the Spirit reaching through the window, holding his face, getting his blood on my hands, picking the glass out of his face, and whispering in his heart that God loves you. God loves you so much. You're going to live and not die, and you're going to declare the works of the Lord, and then praying in tongues. I said to my friend, you don't need a shockwave as much as you think you do. And you don't need a profusion of colors like a little kid. That's why Jesus would say, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. Look at them, they're all coming with sparklers. Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not for such is the kingdom of God. I said, you like a little kid would do better with a handheld sparkler. Friends, in our quest for the Big Bang and profusion of colors and in our relentless pursuit for this mantle of power, we overcomplicate things and we overlook the simplicity of the gospel, which is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And in the process, we find ourselves falsely imprisoned by a hybrid gospel, a brain-dead gospel, 
a car wrecked gospel, a fork in the road gospel, a bridge to nowhere gospel, and eat a hamburger and vomit a hot dog gospel. A different gospel is what the apostle Paul called it. And he would say, that is no gospel at all. It is Jesus plus nothing for our salvation. It is Jesus plus nothing for our righteousness. It is Jesus plus nothing for our holiness. Jesus plus nothing for our strength and security. My last scriptures. Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Now remember, Paul has been writing to the Galatians. He is beginning his descent. He writes these words to the Galatians. He says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. It's a hybrid gospel is what it is. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion. The ditch, if you will. Whoever that may be, he will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, he says, if I am still preaching circumcision. Now, notice he reaches back there, and out of the 613 Jewish laws, he picks out just that one, circumcision. And he says, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those alligators, I mean, those <laughs> that's what they're like. As for those agitators, who's the agitators? It's the Judaizers. It's the Jesus plus people. That's who the agitators are. He says, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. I want you to look at these words. You've got circumcision and emasculate. I highlighted them for you. The word emasculate, let's just be honest. Let's just go with the Greek definition of it. It literally means to castrate. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, while you're circumcising yourself, how about you just slip with the knife and let's just get rid of all of it? You know why he's saying that? Because you can't have offspring anymore. And he's saying the problem is you're converting these people back into Judaism. There's no life. Let's take away your family. Let's emasculate you. I'm telling you, I love this guy's tenacity. I love his boldness. I love what he says. Because he draws pictures that in my mind, I go, oh, I get it. Oh, I see what you're talking about, Paul. The Apostle Paul doesn't have much of this letter left. There's only six chapters as we know it. And he's already deep into chapter five. So as he's beginning his descent in his letter to the Galatians, you know what he does? He commends them for running a good race. And then he expresses confidence in that they will make the right decisions. I know you're going to make the right decisions. And then, like a good daddy, his protective instincts show up once again. 
And he asked the question, who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? What truth is Paul talking about obeying? The truth that he declared in the paragraph before this, the one I preached on the last time I was here, that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Free from moral, free from ceremonial, and free from mortal liability. And then the Apostle Paul would say, stand firm, don't get moved from this, stand firm. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Friends, the yoke of slavery is the law. And the Apostle Paul has worked his way masterfully, skillfully to reach that point and say, look, don't allow yourselves to be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It is the law. It's the moral law. It's the ceremonial law. It's the mortal law. It was the judge, the jury, and the jailer that falsely imprisoned our souls. But Jesus declared with his own words that God did not send his own son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world would be saved. In other words, Jesus is saying, my father didn't send me into the world to put a burden on you, to judge you. That's, a, that's just another deep burden. He said, but my father sent me so that you could be free. Now does it make sense in light of everything we've talked about? Look at the ribbon of everything. When Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. My closing thought. If you remember... I don't know how you could forget. But as you recall, five weeks ago, I got into a poison ivy patch. My left hand became so swollen that I had to drive to the fire department and have a firefighter cut it off. You see, I tried to cut it off myself before I went down there and figured out, my man, I could do this myself. But I didn't have side cutters that were strong enough or big enough, and I just... I just mangled my ring. It looked gnarly. And then they cut it completely off of my, my hand. Well, last week, I took that ring to the jeweler that I bought it from. He said, it will take us about a week. And I got a phone call on Thursday that my ring was ready, that I could come and pick it up. And I remember these words when I dropped it off, that jeweler, I said, you ever cut a ring off anybody? He said, thousands of them. I said, really? He said, sir, when you pick that ring up, he said, you can take a magnifying glass and look that ring over all day long. You'll never, ever see where it was broken. I said, really? Well, yesterday... I decided I can't live without my ring anymore. And I drove that hour's journey to a neighboring city to pick it up. 
And when I came busting through that door, I said, I'm tired. I feel a little naked around here without that ring on my finger. Where's my ring at? And when they brought that thing out of its package, it shone like the morning sun. In fact, I'd never seen that ring look so good. <laughs> I looked it over. I felt it to see if I could feel any burrs on it whatsoever. I felt it, looked it over. He was right. I couldn't tell that my ring had ever been damaged, ever been broken. It was beautiful. I couldn't believe how good of a job they had done in repairing my ring. Isn't that awesome? I want you to see yourself that way. How good of a job God did, not just repairing you, but replacing you. He killed you off to make you brand new again. The residue that's stuck in our mind, that's the stuff that needs the bandages stripped away from. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. The finished work of Jesus Christ is the most suitable triage and the exclusive remedy for the wounded and indoctrinated soul. Service after service, believers get pinned in their church chairs, bleeding from their souls, and in shock that they cannot live up to the demands of the law. I have a word for you that is very important to the sanctification and deliverance of God's people. The law was not made for the righteous, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for the sinners. You say, well, wait a minute now. That sounds like me at times. No, sir. No, ma'am, that is not you. Paul declared when he wrote to those Corinthians, I mean, you talk about mugshots hanging in a post office. It was the Corinthians, friends. And do you know what Paul would tell them when he wrote to them? And he's hearing things about them that are very ungodly-like, very sinner-like. And Paul would write to them, and he would declare these words, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He would say in the same breath, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. You see, knowing these truths gives us the confidence that I've been talking about. The confidence to help others in their moment of crisis. The gospel of grace, you know what it does? It energizes us to leave the comforts of our own vehicles. From time to time to just simply walk across an aisle and to set aside our own agenda to run to the ditches of chaos and to speak life into trapped souls, souls that have been sucker punched by the locomotive named Law, and then subsequently imprisoned by the wreckage of mangled emotions 
and then twisted scripture. Under the law, believers are wearing the shed rags of Lazarus. May I remind us today, though, that the shed rags of Lazarus have been sewn to the train of King Jesus' robe. You see, Jesus is the one who conquered the king of death, hell, and the grave. He alone is high and lifted up, pouring out power, pouring out love. He alone is the one who fills our temple full of glory. So, what do we do with the believers? Come on now. What do we do with the believers that have been falsely imprisoned by the king of a hybrid gospel? We lovingly and graciously remind them that it's time to remove their dressings. It's essential for healing. It's time to cut away the dead skin of old-time religion. It's time to be extricated from the wreckage of great sorrow and unceasing anguish. But, but, what if they don't want their grave clothes removed? What if they resist in having their dressings changed? What if they don't want to walk down the road less traveled? then they will remain a believer all the days of their lives, but they will remain falsely imprisoned in that particular area. Imprisoned in the sense that they have put their faith in a doctrine rather than a person, namely Jesus Christ. Friends, can we revisit just for a second the words that the jeweler told me? He said... When I'm finished with your ring, even if you use a magnifying glass, you won't be able to tell that it was ever broken. Now, if a jeweler can do that with a piece of gold, then hear the words that Peter wrote. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, which is the law handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. Friends, under the law, a man will remain falsely imprisoned, but under grace, he will hear the rhythm of daddy's the rhythm that says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free stand firm do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery I'm calling you to live in the promises of God Amen Father, I thank you so much for your love for us. Father, your heart is to remove the grave clothes. The grave clothes that we have been wearing over our mind for eons. The grave clothes that we have worn and gotten used to wearing from birth. 
And even though it's true, you can't take a person from a southern state to a northern state and command them to talk a different way. What's in them is what typically remains in them except for the miracle of grace. Let's make room for the miracle of grace. I pray as this word falls into the ears, into the hearts of the people that will listen in, that it will have a ring to it. Not the ring that slips over your finger, but the ring in the heart. The ring of the soul. And so thank you, Father, that you do not leave us trapped in those emotions. And I understand coming out of the indoctrinations that we've been in can cause some people to scream. But let those screams be screams and exhortations of joy that they have been sanctified, that they have been delivered from the dominion of darkness, from the influence of dark shadows, and they have been translated, they have been brought into the kingdom of your dear Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833-632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.